If all 7 billion people on Earth consumed the amount of resources as the average American, it would be as if we shared the planet with 72 billion people. I'm Kelsey Timmerman. And I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, we'll discuss food, earth, and sustainability. And we'll chat with organic farmers who open their own grocery store. So, JR, did you go grocery shopping during the beginning of the pandemic when the lockdown began? Like, did you buy anything that you normally wouldn't buy? I'm somewhat spoiled. So, Corey does all of our grocery shopping, but I do remember telling him to stock up on plenty of beer and wine in case we wouldn't leave the house again in a good while. The essentials. The essentials. And of course, you know, folks were stockpiling toilet paper and sorry, everyone, but we joined that crowd as well. Looking back, it wasn't so much of buying something we wouldn't normally buy from a grocery store, but switching our eating habits to fresher food. Pre-pandemic, we ate frozen meals and pre-packaged egg cups. I mean, I think I was the king of frozen meals. Uh, It was just my go-to. It's easy. But those those items did become harder to find after March. So we shifted, for example, to making our own scrambled eggs from a friend's farm. Egg cups. I'm not exactly sure what uh, egg cups are, but um, speaking of eggs, like we actually went the next step and we got chickens. Mm-hmm. We got eight of them. Um, at one point, I did the math to see if like a family of four could live off of the eggs from seven old hens. We got one rooster, seven hens. And nope, uh, you can't. Like We need about 30 more chickens. Um, also, I personally would have to eat 13 eggs a day myself, which doesn't sound very appealing. But as for the food we had to source in the store, which was like 99%, um, I bought some tuna packets. I take, when I go hiking, a few cans of whatever soup was left. I think I have some like pickled pumpkin sauerkraut soup or something. So suddenly suddenly shopping wasn't about taste or preference. It was about calories and survival. The just-in-time food system was in jeopardy of collapsing. There were shipping issues, of course, and we all heard reports of the meatpacking plants that experienced COVID outbreaks and then shut down. Yeah, I remember, too, the chicken was hard to find, and Corey had said the beef and pork prices were skyrocketing. My mom even recounted a horror story to me of two women fighting over the last package of chuck steak in the frozen food aisle at Kroger. Yikes. (laughs) So I have a question. Yeah. If food in the store runs out, then what? I don't know. We get to see more fights in grocery stores. That could turn into an illegal gambling ring somehow. Like, imagine a Mad Max world right here in our community, but instead of Fury Road, it would be Mad Muncie, Fury and Isle 5. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, well, all kidding aside, in Indiana, we have a lot of farmers, like our friend with her chickens that lay delicious eggs. And, like, my chickens, too. You're leaving out my chickens. Yeah, but you have so, so- few of them. <laughs> Oh, they're they're gorgeous and they're very nice chickens. Yeah. Uh, so aside from animals, like what are in those Indiana fields we drive by? Uh, spiders. I oh mean, like gosh. I have nightmares of growing up and running through cornfields with those those huge spiders that aren't really that dangerous. But anyway, there's corn and soybeans. So like field corn would like break your teeth if you try to eat it. It's like it's not really. For human consumption. Like, instead, it gets, like, processed into things like we do eat, like cornflakes and corn syrup and and ethanol to use for fuel and animal feed. So, field corn is kind of out. 
Yeah. Well, I do eat a lot of cereal, so I guess that does count in some ways. But we do have a ton of soybeans, and much can be done with those. So, for example, my favorite side dish is edamame. Our fields aren't filled with your bougie edamame. (laughs) You're right. You can eat soybeans, but you really need to cook them first, or you could end up with some like major digestion issues. So enjoy your bowl of boiled Indiana soybeans. Mm, Well, you make that sound so appetizing. Delicious, actually. And those empty shelves at the grocery store, that doesn't sound so sustainable. Exactly. Sustainable. That's today's secret word. Remember P.B. Herman? Uh Uh-huh. What do you do when we hear the secret word? Scream. Yes, I'm waiting. Okay, well, let's do it together on one, two, three. Ah! That's, I feel like we sound exactly like Pee Wee Herman, right? Uh, I think so. I think you should get your own Pee Wee Herman show. So. <laughs> yeah. so anyhow, we had a project on sustainability. Ah! <laughs> so listeners, uh, you're welcome to play along. This can be an interactive show. So we had a project on the S word. Yes, we did. And to be clear, it was sustainability. <laughs> <laughs> and not the other S word. Uh, of course, the other S word is at the heart of sustainable agriculture. So don't get me started on poop. Mm. No joke. I found this book at a house in Chile. It was called Holy S-word, managing manure to save mankind. Anyhow, I won't get into it, but it's the number one book on number two. I highly recommend it. Sounds like some good bathroom reading. Anyhow, as I was saying, the project was led by Ball State Associate Professor Adam Cuban, who has been in charge of a few facing projects, and he was joined by 11 students from the Ball State University Honors College. They captured stories on recycling, worm hotels, land conservation, farming, and more. It's important we mention the project was inspired by the efforts of Cheryl Swingley, Annette Rose, and Barb Stedman, who organized a sustainability... I'm done screaming. Okay, okay. Sustainability conference known as the Living Lightly Fair. On today's episode, we share the story of Sarah and Dave Ring, owners of a unique grocery store and deli in downtown Muncie, committed to sustainability, and they'll join us later in the show. When we opened the doors of the downtown farm stand for the first time back in 2007, it didn't look like a store at all. We didn't even have a sign out front and the inside of the store was still partially under construction. None of this mattered much though, because we had ambitious goals and a clientele. At the time, downtown Muncie was classified as a food desert, an area where it's difficult to find nutritious food. And it was true. There was nowhere for people to go if they wanted to buy organic, and it was practically impossible to find something as simple as a locally grown tomato in Muncie during the week. We actually chose our location purposefully, so people from low-income neighborhoods would have easier access to our store. When it comes to healthy, organic, locally grown food, we believe that it shouldn't be off-limits to anyone. It's important to note here that one out of every six American households are food insecure, and those living in a food desert are more likely to have higher rates of depression. And some food deserts may actually be food swamps. There may not be a grocery store with healthy options nearby, but often there are convenience stores or fast food restaurants packed with food high in calories, sodium, and sugar. And according to the National Library of Medicine, the best way to reverse this is for there to be healthier options in food insecure neighborhoods. 
So Dave and Sarah were ahead of the curve here. Three years prior to the opening of the store, we had started a local organic farmer's market. But over time, we noticed that other small farmers like us were struggling to sell all of their products there. It was observations like this that gave us the idea for a brick and mortar place for farmers to drop off their products and know they would be sold. This way, they could turn their time and attention back to farming. What we didn't realize at first was how many hours the farm stand would require on our part. A lot of time was spent trying to get together all of the small things it takes to open a store like ours. We needed coolers, a cash register, shelving, and the costs began to add up. For the first year, we managed to keep our farm going as well as keep the store open for one day a week. But the more hours we put into the store, the more successful it was. So we expanded to limited hours six days a week in 2009. That was when we realized we would have to put the farm on hold. We knew it was a necessity to support local organic farmers and give consumers access to good, healthy food, even if we weren't going to bring home a paycheck until two years after we opened. One comment that we get fairly often is that our prices are higher than those of similar products being sold in stores such as Walmart and Target. While this is true, it's important to weigh the costs and benefits. There's a natural instinct to say, I can't afford it. But to be able to live and eat healthily and support a clean environment, many of our customers end up sacrificing unnecessary things like cable TV or the best data plan. An example of one such person is a woman who frequently came into our store to buy ground beef a few years back. She told us that despite the higher costs, she believed it actually saved her money because our meat lasted longer, whereas the meat from corporate grocery stores would shrink in the pan from all the fat and water. And this is just one example. Many customers notice that our food tastes better and is more filling than processed foods they had eaten before. One of the harder aspects of what we do, though, is ensuring that everything we sell is organic first and foremost. We won't accept less, so it can be awkward when non-organic farms come to us to sell their products, and we have to decline. At one point, we found out that our local honey producer hadn't been selling their own honey exclusively. Instead, they had bought commodity honey in large barrels and sold it as their own. So we had to back out of business with them. We don't focus on being environmentally friendly simply for the purpose of being labeled as a sustainable business, but rather because we are genuinely concerned about the impact we are having on our world. So JR, do you remember those Choose Your Own Adventure books? Of course, it was my reading of choice until my fifth grade teacher told me I couldn't write book reports on those. Apparently, someone wasn't willing to get lost in a multi-adventure tale. <laughs> okay, uh, Jr. So uh, in this scenario, we're gonna we're gonna do one. Uh -huh. uh, in in this scenario, oh, you okay. are a you're a farmer, mm -hmm. and on your farm you have a building full of dairy cows. Um, so what do cows do? They eat, and they poop. I knew this was going to get back around to poop since I'm talking to you. Yes. So <laughs> you've got a lot. You've got a lot of cows in your barn, and they all poop but you don't have enough land to spread all of the manure. So you put it in a big old lagoon. It fills up with 21 million gallons of cow poo. Gross. Here's where the adventure comes in. Okay. Giant bubbles form on your poop lagoon. These are 20 foot tall methane bubbles the size of small homes and are able to be seen from space. So do you A, call somebody and ask for help. B, think to yourself, yeah, you know, 
It's just a big bubble. And well, I've got this here pocket knife in my pocket. And then you take a paddle boat out to one of the bubbles and try to pop it. Totally option B. I mean, what could go wrong? And of course, it's an adventure if this is a choose your own adventure book. So I'm going with option B. Okay, option B. You slip your paddle boat into the lagoon of poo and gingerly step inside. For a moment, you recall happier days fishing from this boat. But then the smell brings you back to the present and you pull up your handkerchief. You pull out your knife, insert it into the bubble, and boom, you are blown 40 foot through the air and your eyebrows are burnt off. But you survived. And I'm covered in poo? <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, and maybe maybe, maybe I you lost a little dignity. Maybe I should have gone with option A. Although I don't know, option B is still the best choose your own adventure in this adventure. I guess that is. It was fun. It was fun. Option A, just a professional poop bubble popper comes out and does it for you, right? <laughs> yeah. B was better. Uh, so this actually happened to a farmer in Minnesota. And anyhow, all this is to show is that our way of agriculture is kind of nutty. Like farmers are specializing more now when it comes to crops and livestock, and few of them are in the business of both raising animals and growing crops. So for farmers, poop is a problem. They either have too much or not enough. So these are the types of issues Sarah and Dave are trying to address on their own farm and in their store. When we first opened the store, we reused a lot of things that were already here as building materials to clean up the place. Waste drives us crazy, so we try to stick to the bare minimum. We supply 100% post-consumer recycled paper and biodegradable bags and boxes for when our customers want to take food and drinks to go. All of our carry-out silverware is made from sustainable wood. We opt not to sell plastic bottles of water, even though we could increase our sales by doing so. We have close to zero food waste. Anything that we have left over from the grocery, we work into a soup or a special for the next day or take it home and eat it ourselves. As organic farmers, we see how waste is impacting our ecosystem and contributing to climate change, which is why we do everything we can to reduce our ecological footprint. Being sustainable is really a selfish choice. It's self-preservation. But we do what we do because we believe that the benefits are infinite. Sarah and Dave Ring are organic farmers and owners of the downtown farm stand in Muncie, Indiana. Welcome to the show, Sarah and Dave. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having us. Great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for... Always being great supporters of the Facing Project. We've eaten a lot of your paninis through the years, so it's uh, helped fuel the project for sure. So in 2013, the Organic Consumer Association published a list of grocers that sold 100% organic products. Uh, it was a short list, and the downtown farm stand was one of only five that exclusively sold organic products. So congratulations on that. Um, but hey, why, why not... Why not slip in a little Kraft mac and cheese or Frosted Flakes? Like, why is organic so important? Well, we really wanted to create, you know, the demand um, so that if there were producers or uh, processors or anything in the area that wanted to do organic, that that demand would be there. And um, then it also, we kind of passed that demand up. So when we have a distributor like our beer and wine distributor or uh, anybody else and they 
try to sell us other goods. And we're like, well, no, we're an all organic store. What do you have that's organic? And so then they ask their bosses and their distributors. So that, that, that request just kind of travels itself up the line. Really purchasing with our dollars, we don't really want to purchase anything either that's not organic. We're kind of, I guess, purists in that sense. But you know, so that's a great way well, you're supporting organic uh, growers and like the industry as a whole. But like fundamentally, like why? Like what? Why is it so important for you to support organic in terms of like uh, environment, cultural aspects, uh, economic? Like what? What is so critical about organic that you've just like don't compromise on that one area? Well, go ahead. I'd like both of us to weigh in on this because you know we're we're each of our own reasons for me i always you know when you're when you're searching for you know um, a career or or just a a lifetime of what you want to do with yourself and you you know i really wanted to you know contribute make the world better place and um and when i stumbled upon organic farming like in depth and i started reading books and um becoming knowledgeable of it and and uh, getting influenced, I, I, under, I began to understand that it was one of those rare answers that you find in life that can solve a lot of different problems. You know, so it can, you know, clean up the environment. It can put people to work in good, clean jobs. It can give you healthy food for um, with higher nutrient contents, and then you can cut down on the uh, amount of toxins entering your body through pesticides and clean air and clean water. Um, and, and then, you know, you're building communities. And so if you're, if you're throwing local into the mix, then you're purchasing that, that food in your community, which is, is adding to, um, not just the, the economics of building community, but also just the giving people, uh, something to do that they feel, um, empowered in, in their community. So it was, it just seemed like a no brainer that it was something that you know, I was kind of shocked that that hadn't caught caught on more and that maybe we could help. I would say for me, when we moved out to California and we had all the wonderful farmer's markets, that was kind of my first experience with a lot of fresh food where um, it was very exciting to, you know, see all the food and create things with the food. Um, And then I started seeing how the food really impacted me. Um, you know, those around me, whether it be, you know, pets, then once we have kids, you know, the kids, how it affected them. And it really became, you know, medicine for us, you know, um, and, and a lifestyle. Um, on the other side, I could see when, you know, things that weren't healthy, things that weren't natural, things that weren't organic, um, had a negative impact on ourselves, our, our pets, um, our children. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what really started the passion for me and has kept it going. Um, you know, people kind of laugh when they come over sometimes, you know, employees or, or whatever that we don't know really well. And they're like, wow, your house looks just like the store. It's like, yes, yeah, we, we have the store because we live the store, you know, yeah. we, we take those values at home. Um, and with organic farming, it's a lifestyle that doesn't negatively impact anyone else or anything else. And that's really important to me. You know, um, it builds up communities, it, it builds up people. Um, and it just doesn't have a negative impact. Yeah. So you both grew up in the Midwest. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. 
So I, I don't, I'm not even sure if I knew what organic food was until I moved away in like the early 2000s. I remember being in North Carolina and a coworker of mine was eating an organic orange and like, I think I made fun of her for, for it. And apparently I thought like real food required chemicals and everything else was like for hippies or, um, so I've come, I've come a long way since then. Um, but like when and how did organic become something that was important to you personally? It sounded maybe that was in like California. Like you, is that when you first like heard about it? That's when I was first exposed to it really. Of course, you know, my grandparents farmed, you know, um, and you know, back then there really wasn't an organic. It was just the way that they grew food. For me, like, well, so when we moved out to California, um, I had an idea about um, trying to do an internship on a farm. I actually got exposed to it in while at Ball State. Um, we had there was a group of friends that were all you know we were growing gardens and things at the time in the city, and uh, I got some books. Um, you know, Elliot Coleman was one of the first books that I read, and he's he's of course extremely inspiring, and and then it just it we were we were moving to get you know, outdoors and do something totally different than, than what we'd done to that point. Cause we were both from the Midwest. And, um, and so then when I get out, got out there, it was pretty easy to find a farm to connect with that needed an internship. So I did an internship in Placerville and, um, it, it was definitely an accumulation of all these events that, um, that kind of just further instilled that we were on the right track, doing the right thing. And, no turning back. Mm-hmm. So, in the in the last twelve months, we've uh, experienced the still in global pandemic, and right at the beginning, with the first lockdown was coming down, like f- shelves at grocery stores were were bare. Um, there was concern of the food system. The the meat packing industry got shut down, um, and so I think maybe we started to question a little bit, like the our just in time food system. But like, what has the pandemic taught us about our food system? Well, the, the, the first thing that we learned was that um, Americans were eating a huge percentage of their meals every week at restaurants. So the, the processing of meats and things is, are what we noticed first because when meat processors are selling the majority of a product to restaurants, then they're packaged in bulk. And so then when restaurants were shut down and people actually started cooking at home, changing over all that machinery and the distribution network and everything to be able to package things for consumers versus restaurants is not something that could happen overnight. So that was one of the bigger hiccups in the beginning. So that's why we saw the, the milk being dumped out and the pigs being killed. At the same time, we saw long lines at the food banks. It seemed like such a discrepancy. Yeah, because restaurants buy different food than grocery shoppers. Also, you know, we saw this whole kind of back to the kitchen movement, which we saw, I think, in after the 08 crash, too. A lot of people went out and built gardens this year. Um, they got a lot of new cooking supplies and they started baking at home. There's a shortage on yeast and yeast and flour were so hard to get for such a long time. But then people also realized that the food distribution was, wasn't localized. So they were totally dependent on things coming from other places. 
And while those of us, you know, who, who deal with that kind of thing all the time, um, are like, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> As it's, a, it's a problem. Uh, a lot of people were completely shocked to figure that out. And so there kind of was this buy local push for a little bit, but then, you know, as things do, you know, the, the page gets turned and people kind of go back to mm-hmm. not worrying too much about it. Yeah. So often sustainability um, revolves around using less, um, conserving, reducing into a culture like ours. It's obsessed with more that can seem like kind of a bummer. So like how, has your life and aligning your career and diets in this way, um, how's it added to like the joy in your life as opposed to subtracted from it? I would say quality over quantity. Um, the food that we eat on a daily basis that we're so uh, fortunate and blessed to be able to have access to, um, you know, tastes so much better. And I, I think that the pastured meat, um, revolution, which we've seen in this country, you know, on a grow on a, on a nice steady scale over the years, uh, is built on the idea that people can eat less meat. They can eat really good quality meat if they eat less meat. So then if you're not, you know, eating, you know, three patties of breakfast sausage in the morning and a hamburger at lunch and, you know, something else at dinner, um, well, you know, you can eat meat less often and pay for a quality product and get something that's a whole lot better, you know, and then it's your doctor's probably going to like that too, because you're, you're taking care of your body, you're eating more plant-based foods, things like that. So I think that's really what that's built on is, is being able to less is more. And I would probably just add one more thing about, you know, um, kind of something positive that's come out of the pandemic it's been, it's been a challenge, you know, um, with the store and the deli and just the ups and downs and, you know, everything that everyone else is going through, you know, too, and maybe different degrees or, um, circumstances, but it's felt so good to be able to be there for our customers and nourish them with good food, you know, what they're used to, what they like, um, there's been a lot of new people um, that have been introduced to like our soups, for example, uh, which pretty much just get thrown together with whatever we need to use to be sustainable. Um, so you never know what you're going to get. You never really follow a recipe and people are just blown away. And it just feels so good to give people that nourishment, that positivity and spread that love through food um, in that way. If you can get to the point where you can actually do the work, you know, working out on a farm, you know, in the outdoors Mm. and you get involved in that rhythm of the day to day, uh, chores and the seasons and you become more in tune with nature and the seasons and you know, what's coming next. And, And there's a, there's a deep, deep, you know, I'm not a super spiritual guy. I mean, I'm spiritual, but you know, kind of in a quiet way, but there's a deep grounding to that, that you just feel at peace all throughout your body once you're engrossed in the, the rhythms of nature. And I think that's a big part of what we're missing, you know, in our, in our busy world, because we're so disconnected from farms, 
um, you know, nature, the environment. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, so many people have so little contact with nature. I've even heard people talk about how important it is for them to, when they're working out in their garden, to take their shoes off and to just be out there barefoot. And I, I, I was on the farm in Hawaii and I, I did that all day barefoot. Oh my gosh. I had blisters all over my feet. <laughs> Maybe take it a, a little bit of a time. <laughs> yeah, ease into it. Yeah, it was but it is, That's a thing. I mean, I, like, and, and Indiana is so great. The Midwest is so great for that because, you know, you can walk outside in the grass and we don't have, you know, scorpions or yeah. fire ants or anything like that. And it's a great, it, there is something to it. You do feel. Like I said, I'm not even one to really believe in energy, but I feel like there is something there. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time and, and being part of the Facing Project. Uh, Sarah and Dave Ring, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kelsey. Appreciate it. The ecological footprint of an average American is 23.6 acres. That means we consume what 23.6 acres of our planet can produce. If all 7 billion earthlings were Americans, we'd need five planets. We want to thank Dr. Adam Cuban and the Honors College of Ball State University for leading the Facing Sustainability Project. The book is available at facingproject.com and at the press page. Facing Sustainability was inspired by the efforts of Cheryl Swingley, Annette Rose, and Barb Stedman. In this episode, Carl Frost played Dave Ring, with story by Becca Forder and Bryn Marlowe. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast, where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by the amazing producer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. And until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. 